Okay, so last week we were introduced to Saul of Tarsus. He was a well-respected Jew and prided himself in believing that he was the defender of all things good deemed by God. So this meant kosher laws, good. Temple system, good. Holy text, good. Jesus who claims to be the son of God, bad. Actually, evil. So he traveled throughout Israel hunting down, arresting, and murdering Jesus followers simply because he believed that he was doing God a favor by demolishing this quickly expanding community that called themselves the way. But Jesus made a special appearance in a way that was packed with meaning, like you know, with flashing bright lights, audible voice, and dramatic revelation and everything. That combined with the kind of inclusive ministry of Ananias, Saul switched his allegiance. So the persecutor of the way has now become a member of the way. So what do you think happened to Saul after that? I mean, do you think his life got better? Well, let's just say that the violent world that Saul created to persecute the way, that world is now the same world that he had to face. several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. I mean, Saul is excited to share this new revelation with anyone he could find. So he went to places where he knew he had an audience, in this case, a Jewish synagogue. And it says that he passionately told the people in the synagogues that he has changed his mind about who Jesus was. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, what I find really interesting here is that Saul was proving to the Jews that Jesus was indeed the Christ or Messiah. Now, given the context, meaning like he's in a synagogue right here, the most likely way that he was trying to prove to these people that Jesus was the Messiah was by using the Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures. And I find it so fascinating that prior to his conversion, the scriptures were used to prove that the Jesus followers were heretics. But now he's using this very same text to prove that Jesus's movement is right. I mean, it just comes to show that the eyes and the hearts of the reader of the text has just as much of a role in interpreting scripture than the text itself. Okay, anyways, back to Saul's story. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept a close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. Because, you know, of course, this is the world that Saul helped create, and now he's on the receiving end of it. Oh, and by the way, this is no surprise to Saul. When he chose to join the way, he knew his life was about to become tougher. All right, let's move on. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the window. If you can imagine what's happening here, it's, it's astounding. Saul left Jerusalem to go to Damascus on a horse as a well-respected man in Jewish and Roman society, and now he's leaving Damascus in the middle of the night in a basket. I mean, this is humiliating. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Okay, so he's back in Jerusalem. That's where the church, the way, started. But he's not hanging out with his religious friends that he had before he left for Damascus. He's now going to someone's home church. He's trying to join the church. He's trying to join the way. And understandably, 
they are afraid of him because, again, because of the world he created prior to his conversion. But as we learned last week, God is on the move and he's moving the church to tear down walls, walls of race, walls of culture, walls of socioeconomic status. And now God is moving the church to tear down that wall that separates them from their enemies. So in comes one of the most encouraging people in the book of Acts, Barnabas. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Now, if any of you have read ahead and know how the story of Acts is going to unfold, you'll know that Saul eventually is known as Paul. Paul the Apostle, the guy who writes half of the New Testament and plants the majority of the first churches in history. And I'm sure you will also know that those goals wouldn't have happened if the church rejected Saul at this point in history. And sometimes, you know, all it takes is just one person in the church to befriend someone to make a big dent in history. Now Saul talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So he just can't stay out of trouble, can he? I mean, he was so excited about finally understanding the significance of who Jesus was that he couldn't stop telling people the good news. And because of this, he was always on the run. And for the rest of his life, he would not have a permanent address. I mean, he became a fugitive. Okay, so the question I have after reading this passage is, did Saul ever regret his decision of casting aside all his wealth, all the respect, all the notoriety, all the security that he had? Was it worth giving all that up for following Jesus? I mean, if I could interview Saul right now, I would ask him how drastic it was for him to, to move from a person of great stature of Israel, who was well-respected and rode a high horse to Damascus, only to eventually become the man of humiliation who had to escape the middle of the night in a basket. Well, lucky for us, as it turns out, he actually shares this bit of info in a letter he wrote, and that letter is recorded for us in 2 Corinthians. He writes, Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in an open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. I mean, that is a life that Saul did not know until coming to Jesus, right? I mean, just to give you context, Saul is writing this letter to a church in a city called Corinth. And he's writing this letter because he heard that there was some quarreling happening at that church. So in this letter, Saul is trying to give his list of accomplishments to show him that he may be the authority to solve this problem. But Saul does something crazy here. Instead of giving them a list of the accomplishments that he has, things that he could brag about, instead he starts bragging about his misfortunes. And that list climaxes at the end with this line. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, 
The governor under King Aridus had the city of Demesines guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lured in the basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. Okay, this is so good. To know what Paul is saying here, we have to first understand the ancient Roman culture. In that culture, military might and bravery was regarded as one of the highest virtues and one of the highest awards known in that culture was called the Corona Moralis or the crown of the wall. It looked like this. It was a literal crown and it looked like the wall of a city with gates and walls and battle damage and everything. It was made out of pure gold and you would stand out above everyone else if you had on one of these bad boys. Yeah, look at this statue of the goddess Tyche. She has one of these crowns on her head just to show how powerful she is. So how does a normal person achieve this award? Well, as I mentioned earlier, Rome was a militant force. And when Rome came to a city with high walls that they wanted to invade, they would surround it and camp out. And then they would force them to submit. And there were several ways of doing this. Like for example, number one, they could wait for them outside the walls and wait for them to starve because nobody could go in and out of the city. But if that city had enough resources and food supply, it might take a long time. So here's option number two. They could use a battering ram to tear down the wall, but if the walls were well fortified, this is just a waste of time. So there's a third way that they took over the city, which is they would make this super long ladder and they put him against the wall and then climb into the city. But this method also had some problems. Like for example, the defenders could push the ladders over while the soldiers were climbing it, or they could point an arrow at them and shoot them as they're climbing, or they could pour boiling liquid on top of them. And even if they made it to the top, they would probably be outnumbered because there'll be a concentration of soldiers waiting to attack them as soon as you get off the ladder. So if you were commanded by your superior to be the first soldier on that ladder and climb up the ladder, you would have to be crazy to accept that task. So the Romans, they created this crown called the crown of the wall or the Corona Muralis. If you're the first soldier over that wall and survive the war, the crown was yours. So imagine if you were that soldier, you come home to your village with the Corona Morales proudly on your head and you could brag about your accomplishments until the day you die. I mean, just imagine you could be like, there I was standing in front of the city. The only thing between me and sweet victory was this 30 foot wall and a dozen soldiers. So I grabbed my ladder, ran towards the wall and I began to climb. <laughs> okay, so the Corona Morales was the thing that you could boast about. And historians know from ancient documents that people bragged about their achievements in the ancient Roman culture a lot. And the Church of Corinth, which was located in one of the Roman cities, was no exception to that rule. You see, in this passage in 2 Corinthians, Saul is listing his own quote-unquote achievements. All of them are things that any normal person in Rome would be too ashamed to admit, let alone celebrate. And at the climax of that list, he says, Hey, I know you guys really enjoy the whole climbing the wall award but I was the one that was lured down a wall in a basket. You see, while everyone else is bragging about climbing walls and claiming victory, he was boasting about running away in the middle of the night like a coward. Now, of course, we know that Paul is teasing the people who are reading this letter. He's saying that in the eyes of the world that he used to be a part of, his greatest achievement would have included things like high stature in society, the respect that he gained from the religious community, the security and the wealth that he accumulated. But now he finds all those things as garbage. In other words, all the things that he achieved would usually wow people. He says those things don't impress him anymore. I mean, like at all. He's not interested in the Corona Morales or whatever the equivalent of that would be in the religious world. Instead, he's interested in the Corona Christi or the crown of Christ. So if I were to ask Saul, was it worth losing your popularity, your fame, your wealth, your accreditation, your safety for the sake of gaining Christ? He would say, 
Absolutely, it was totally worth it. It's not even a close comparison. And later in his story, Saul does lose everything. He's eventually caught and thrown into prison. And while he's in jail, he wrote another letter and this is what he said. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. In other words, from the moment that Saul joined the Jesus movement, his life was turned upside down and it cost him everything. And he wouldn't want it any other way. His value system was completely flipped around. You see, for Saul, he discovered that some things are more important than being rich, safe, respected, and popular. Basically, everything that Corona Morales represented. And that something is Jesus who gave up everything for the sake of love. So church, may you chase after the Corona Christi where grace, mercy, generosity, and inclusion abound. And may you not get bogged down by the achievements of this world that may not count towards anything that Jesus stood for. And may you experience heaven together. God bless.